This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning, it's Monday, it's the 10th of January. I'm Tabitha McIntosh in the breakfast slot, back after a far too short Christmas break. And today I'm giving you a rather shallow deep dive into the history of the educational present, outdoor education edition, revolution, Scandinavians, nationalism, masturbation and gnomes. Stay tuned. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Special good morning to those of you actually joining me live. Good morning, Dorian, Ollie, and Praveen. Right, so history of outdoor education. Um, fascinating topic, absolutely complicated. So I've taken as a spine for this the um, genealogy created by the Forest School Association in there. And watch out for the pun here. It's it's really clever. Um, a brief history of the roots of Forest School of the UK by John Cree and Mel McCree, written in 2012. So I'm going to be using their genealogy of outdoor education, but interrupting it, reorganizing it, having to skip back to the beginning, explaining why things actually don't belong where they have been said to belong, and and really looking at some of the underlying trends. Now I should make it very clear from the start: this is very specifically a Northern European look so i'm not going beyond um western mostly northern europe because the particular version of outdoor education that we have is very 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 much drawn from those specific geographical cultural roots quite self-consciously as we'll see so it starts according to the forest school association with pestalozzi pestalozzi who is in switzerland um 1799 he uh <laughs> He's set up a, a working farm that really hasn't worked at all. Um, he's attempted to teach children by making them do work, somehow run it as a for-profit business at the same time. He's had to be bailed out by people. It's really not working at all. But in that, he's, um, he's experimenting in a very similar way to a lot of people working in Switzerland um, at the end of that century. Uh, if you have been listening to this show for a long time, you'll remember the absolutely gorgeously deranged pamphlet I read out once about um, the the one where all the poor children were going to be taught while working and that they were taught the maths while they were hoeing rows of potatoes and such. And if they didn't continue to hoe the rows of potatoes, they went to the bottom of the class immediately. And the schoolmaster had to sleep with them in the barn in order to bond that one. Yeah, so that, that's the kind of stuff going on um, at the farm at Newhoff and these other experimental models. Obviously, they're inspired by Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his rolling around on an alpine mountaintop school of education. So Pestalozzi makes it a little bit more serious and starts thematizing it and writing books to go along with it, um, particularly like this line about what happens in 1799. He no longer looked at the products of the children's labors as a possible source of income. I say we bring that back. Let's start selling stuff they make. I don't mean that. Um, and then he writes a book, How Gertrude Teaches Her Children, 1801. But I'm just going to leave him. We're going to abandon him in Switzerland. And we're going to go to the next uh, step in the genealogy of forest schools, 
which is a German man called Froebel. So he is crucial for the entire kind of history of uh, both Northern European education and Anglophone education because he founds kindergartens. He coins the term completely himself. He's a student of Pestalozzi. He's very much part of the nationalist tradition. So in, in your histories of the Forest School Association, that word nationalism doesn't appear. You get uh, radicalism and reform, um, ideas of social improvement, amelioration, but we leave out one of the crucial things that is part of outdoor education in every way in which it appears in Germany and then as we'll see in um, Scandinavia, across Scandinavia, and that is very much as part of this romantic nationalist movement from the end of the 18th century to the beginning of the 19th, where people start looking at um, you know, Volkish nationalism. What does it mean to be Danish? What does it mean to be Norwegian? What does it mean to be German? And specifically, if you're from one of the many, many um, city-states and, and countries that makes up the German Confederation at the time, talking about German nationalism, a supranational thing, an, an idea that there are Teutonic culture, which underlies all of these different German nations, is crucial to the nationalist movement of the early 19th century. That, of course, then turns into the revolutions of 1848. And, and finally, we'll, they'll find ultimate expression in National Socialism in the 20th century. So here, as ever, throughout the show and generally, we're looking where things go strange, some of the underlying conditions that, that link them together. And also, um, as I'm particularly inclined to do with education, looking at how it's intimately tied to nationalism and also an idea of ethnicity, because outdoor education in Western Europe, it will not shock you to know, coming from the 19th century, is very, very intimately concerned with whiteness and ethnicity and the creation of the sense of an ethnic self. Right, so let's go back to Mr. Froebel. Poor Mr. Froebel, carrying the weight of all this on his shoulders. He's very much part of that nationalist tradition. So. Throughout his career, he's moving between his interests in nature and in education. He founds the German General Education Institute in 1816. That's a non-coincidental date. That's the collapse of, of Napoleonic control of Europe. Um, and a coming back together of all of those German states, a lot of discussion from that point onwards about what it means to confederate as Germans as opposed to against Prussia and Austria and stuff like that. Um, he writes The Education of Man in 1826, and in 1840, he coins the term kindergarten. Um, if, if you think that my tying together of politics and, and nascent nationalism are, are tenuous, you should know that after 1848-9, the Prussian government completely cracked down both on the German Revolution, liberal and nationalist movements, and on his kindergarten schools. So they were closed. Kindergartens were banned in 1851. So from the very beginning, child-centred play, outdoor education, practical education um, is connected to menacing social movements to uh, kind of autocratic state governance. But at the same time, as we must never forget, tied to other deeply unpleasant things that will evolve in the 20th century. Now, the next thing they've got here so we're going to have to sweep later into the 19th century into a different country and then really go into the 20th century. So when they make, when people make these genealogies of the present, 
They play very fast and loose with, with causal factors. And what we get here is um, what the Forest School Association focuses on is the Scandinavian free live culture, free open air life. This is crucial to modern Scandinavian um, national conceptions of self. I'm going to read you um, from Visit Norway, right? So it's a uh, huge website created by the Norwegian government. Very, very glossy. One of those websites where you've got a picture and as you scroll down, the picture moves and text appears. And then we get, you know, video and closed captioning. So we get black box text on glossy pictures of, and of course, makes sense given the the ethnic makeup of Norway but also is quite specific an awful lot of white people playing outside uh, they're either in hammocks or they're doing adventure skiing or they're rowing a boat or they're eating a, a Nordic berry but it's very much mono-ethnic what we're being shown and uh, we get we get the words like this free loose live is not just a thing it's a whole philosophy a way of life we see a mother and child. It's a commitment to celebrate time outdoors, no matter your age or physical condition. Connect, calm down, clear your head, relax, refresh, re-energize. So in the 21st century, this is being marketed to, you know, English-speaking Americans, English people, as, as a sort of form of mindfulness, but it's very much a national ethos tied to the sense of self. There's law associated with it. So there's like the right to roam laws in, in the Scandinavian countries, which really draw on this free, loose, live culture, have that built in that you can roam anywhere because it's a huge essential part of the national self. Uh, BBC's article, um, I'll just read you from that. <clears throat> the expression literally translates as open air living and was popularized in the 1850s by the Norwegian playwright and poet, Henrik Ibsen, who use the term to describe the value of spending time in remote locations for spiritual and physical well-being. We're going to come back to that, bookmark the idea of what Ibsen was doing there. Today, the phrase is used more broadly by Swedes, Norwegians and Danes to explain anything from lunchtime runs in the forest to commuting by bike or on cross-country ski trips when the snow falls, to joining friends at a lakeside sauna, to simply relaxing in a mountain hut. The concept is also linked closely to Almansraten, the right to roam, Scandinavian countries all have similar laws which allow people to walk or camp practically anywhere as long as they show respect for the surrounding nature and locals. And they've got a quotation from um, someone who runs a blog on, um, I have to keep going back to the pronunciation code, free laws to live culture. Even after we became more urbanized, we had this longing to get back to nature. And for the last hundred years, a lot of voluntary organizations like the Scouts and the tourist boards have organized and educated people about how and why to spend time outdoors. Now that's why I'm saying that the chronology of the past is very complicated when we come to outdoor education, because there's, there's the real history of outdoor education in terms of things that followed on from one another. And then there's this mythological national history, this desire to return to nature, um, which rehistoricizes the remembered past and does quite specific things with it that, that are tied in line with 19th century developments of the nation state, independence movements, etc. Crucial, of course, for someone like Ibsen with a newly independent Norway trying to articulate what it means to be Norwegian 
in new Norwegian language. So getting back to nature, I thought it's good to unpack Ibsen at this point because, you know, I study Ibsen with my sixth form as we do a doll's house and Ibsen's a doll's house, which is what, 1870 something. It's, a, it's, it's completely the bourgeois urban experience. There's nothing of nature in it. Um, I think some of the more dreary characters might yearn for lakes or what have you at some point. But most of the time, there's no yearning for nature. There's no yearning for God. There's no yearning for anything but macaroons, nor is, nor is a fiend for macaroons. Um, but it's intensely urban, bourgeois, um, capitalist, consumer capitalist, Veblen, you know, visible consumption type world. But in the late 1850s, 1860s, before he'd really established that as a brand, he was trying to write these nascent, what does it mean to be naturally Norwegian, off in the mountains, etc., etc. Um, of note, he moved to Italy in, in his early 30s and never came back. So his iterations of Norwegian nationalism, the Norwegian landscape, have, even from the 1860s, a nostalgic imaginary quality to them that he certainly did not feel himself because he ran off to Italy. So this is um, from, obviously Ibsen's hugely important as a national literary figure. So if you find uh, Norwegian writing about Ibsen that's easily available on the web, it tends to be very heroic um, because of course he's the, the father of modern Norwegian literature. So this is from a Norwegian article on the subject. In the poem, right, this is where he comes up with the phrase. So this, this Scandinavian concept that the, the outdoor education movement, the free school movement has said is one of their foundational and oldest concepts actually turns out to not come until 1859. It gets written down for the first time by Ibsen in his poem On the Heights. Sounds romantic, doesn't it? In the poem, the protagonist, a young farmer, struggles with his dilemma. Should he take over the farm and continue in his forefather's footsteps, lead a life in the village as the neighbours expected him to, or live the free life of a hunter? Is it wise to follow his inner voice for his calling in life? Um, Ibsen at the time did not have that kind of life at all. Ibsen had uh, been forced to go train as a pharmacist. He'd fathered, this article leaves out, he'd fathered a child who he had had no affective relationship with for the rest of his life. He sent money. Um, that was it. He was not living this sort of like village mountain hunter lifestyle. So, so this back to nature going into the wild idea here is very much metaphoric for other kinds of spiritual struggle and creative removal from the confines of beastly bourgeois existence. But so, so what does this, this farmer do? Let's find out. This dilemma causes him great anguish. In this scenario, the life of the farmer is pitted against the life of the hunter. The protagonist decides to leave the village, meets his girlfriend by the village gate and invites her up the path into the woods to spend the night with him. And now, even though he can choose to have her as his mate, he decides to leave her. That's kind of a theme with Ibsen. He decides to leave her and continue his trek up to the mountain plateau. He now has an overview of the village and the valley and is faced again with the existential challenge of choosing a stable life in the village or to continue his trek searching for his calling in life. Um, I've labelled the next section Ibsen being an asshole. The young farmer's son chooses the lonesome hunter's life. He will lead a life based on his inner conviction of freedom and meaning, independent of the demands and expectations he feels his village neighbours will place on him. By making this choice, 
he sacrifices a life with his beloved and his mother. We have to leave the women behind. They're just, they're a terrible drag on our spiritual development. I remember first hearing this in the 80s when uh, people would play Freebird. I'm as free as a bird now. And this bird, you cannot change. Um, it won't surprise you to know that Ibsen, in other um, texts from the period, gives his character bird names. A lot of men yearning to escape the bourgeois bonds of, of having to be responsible for the children they fathered and the women who they fathered them upon. By making this choice, he sacrificed himself. He liberates himself from something to achieve something else. Ibsen was in a similar situation at the time he wrote his poem. He was the artistic director at Christiana Norska Theatre. The theatre was in financial straits, and so was Ibsen. His wife was pregnant. He'd taken out a loan to manage his expenses. And when he began to drink to forget his problems, he had problems with the governing board of the theatre. So, again, even from its first inception, this particular idea, which the modern Norwegian tourist board, the BBC, everyone identifies, including the forest school, outdoor school education movement, as being integral to Scandinavian life, really isn't articulated until the second half of the 19th century. Um, and then by a man who's really doing none of it, right? Not only is he not climbing up into the mountains, it's clearly a metaphor for the fact that he doesn't want to deal with his personal debt. Um, and he will, in fact, leave the country altogether. So, dubious, dubious history, dubious positioning, but we're always blending metaphor and reality. Uh, Peterson in 1999, analysing that, what it means, this, this free life, air, breath lifestyle. It says, it can be no coincidence that a man is the first to use this concept that a man can say farewell to the fiddling work in a narrow mountain valley. An independent and free life in the mountains was an option for young men, but not for women, neither for an old farmer's wife or the healthy farmer's daughter. We abandon our mothers and daughters to do the outdoor spirit. Now, the next part of their genealogy, they put Steiner in Austria, and they've put that in the 19th century, right next to Froebel. But in fact, Waldorf schools are a distinctly 20th century phenomenon. So I'm going to come back to them. But what's crucial is that in creating our chronologies of the present, we have to move some things back, move some things forward, historicize some phenomenon, make some schools older, take words from one bit, put them another, in order to create the particular end point that we want. Forest School Association is um, experimental, child-centered, profoundly to do with democracy, social justice, etc. Um, just like the Woodcraft folk movement, uh, which is the kind of pacifist, leftist version of the Boy Scouts that's, that's founded about 12 years after the Boy Scouts. So in creating a genealogy for those things, you have to leave out a lot. So I'm just saying, let's bring it all back together. So who do we get to now? Well, after the ad, which we're about to listen to, I'm going to take us to John Harvey Kellogg. So we're going to skip across the world, away from mountains in Switzerland, away from the confederating German states and the crackdown on nationalism, and over to the United States, 40 years later, to see what happens next. Right, now it's time for the news with Gail Glenn. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, 
alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cats. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide <coughs> emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. According to a report in the Times Educational Supplement, the current state of SEND provision in England is resulting in magnet and honeypot schools. Magnet schools is a term which has increasingly been given to settings which have a higher percentage of students with SEND on roll than is reflected in the local community. Many of these schools are concerned that their higher than average proportion of students with SEND is not significantly recognised by Ofsted or the government. Pep Delazio, head teacher of Wales High School in Sheffield, says his school is a magnet school and added, it's like having a five-star review on TripAdvisor. This year's open evening was frightening. We had parents coming from all over the nearby authorities we serve because of our reputation. And that is worrying because while we want to do our best for these students, how long can we maintain it? According to the most recent government data, between 2015 and 2021, the number of SEND students in England rose from 991,981 to 1,083,003. In October, Nadim Sahawi said that he recognised the urgency around providing the provision of SEND. The Education Secretary, Nadim Sahawi, has backed the reduction of the COVID isolation period from seven to five days, saying it would be more helpful. Speaking to the Sunday Times, he said, the UK Health Security Agency have said they want to review it. So we will stick to seven days, but if they review it and say they will bring it down to five days, then that is even better for me. It's even more helpful. His comments come after parents were urged to book jabs for their children as official COVID deaths passed 150,000 in the UK. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Last week I looked at some free apps for the New Year's resolution of getting fit and healthy. This week I tried a few things out and I'm ready to present my findings. First up, the free version of MyFitnessPal. There's an old age saying that 90% of fitness is in the kitchen. If you want to get in shape, you have to have the right building blocks to do so. With this in mind, I set out to log everything I ate and for good measure, I even broke out the scales to get portion sizes correct. My first discovery is that 45 grams of granola, the recommended portion size, is nothing like the portion I've been having. In fact, I'd go as far as to say that it wouldn't even fill a hamster. Realising I was eating three or four times the portion I was supposed to has made me think about my other choices, so I ate the recommended 45 grams and logged the milk. I was surprised how easy it was to find foods in the search feature, even supermarket brands. The app gave me a calorie target based on my weight, height and goal I'd chosen. As I had a coffee, I decided to map out my day and stick to it to stop myself cheating. After a week of tracking, I reviewed what I was eating. I could see where most fat and calories were coming from, allowing me to consider, I'm not promising anything, where I could make changes. The question you want me to answer is, did I lose weight? The answer is yes, but I think my next experiment had the most impact on that. Over the break, I managed to fall asleep watching TV and woke up to an infomercial on a DVD box set to get fit in 60 days. 60 days sounds quite quick, but thinking about it, it's practically two months. However, I did a bit of research and found a program that didn't need any weights or equipment, just floor space. I picked up the Insanity Workout series for around £35 on Amazon. My thinking being, you'd pay that for a month in a gym and I get to keep this forever. Now, I will confess, I do consider myself quite fit already. However, nothing could have prepared me for this. With Sean T, the amazing energetic coach screaming dig deeper and about 20 fitness professionals bouncing around what looked like a high school gym i've spent 45 minutes a day for the past six days jumping stretching squatting and definitely sweating being honest i was ready to tap out after the warm-up on day one i'm not gonna lie i used muscles i don't think i've ever used by day three even sitting still and lying in bed at night hurt after pushing through today on day seven a rest day the pain has subsided and i feel great i just have one word of warning if you're looking to do something like this the a long walk from the car park with a load of books may be impossible in the first week. Read the disclaimer, this is not to be taken lightly. In conclusion, I can't see myself keeping up my fitness pal once the novelty wears off, but it has made me look at my diet. A DVD fitness programme for me is great. Finding 45 minutes is not always easy, and if you want to try before you buy, if you're a member of Netflix or Prime already, there's programmes on there which are already in your subscription. Next week, we're back to Tech for Teaching. I'm Steve Woods, and this was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back. Uh, Several people joined us recently. You might have done too, in which case I'll just give you a reminder what I'm talking about. Um, I am playing with the history, the genealogy of outdoor education as provided by the um, Outdoor Education Specialist Organisation in the United Kingdom. Um, And I've been looking at how it's tied to developing nationalism, um, about how it includes a lot of rather odd things that get smoothed out in the chronological asynchronous retelling of it. So one of the things we've looked at is uh, Froebel, who founds the German um, kindergarten movement and invents the word in 1840, how that's tied to German developing German nationalism and entirely crushed by the Prussian government after the revolutions of 1848 to nine. So it's tied both to liberalism and the development of democracy and rights but also something that you know becomes deeply problematic in german culture in the 20th century um notions of folk nationalism blood and soil nationalism um and we'll see that coming later in uh, my favorite group of people the wandering bird movement of the late 19th century 
when I say favorite, that's very much an in inverted commas. We've also looked at um, free Lutz live culture which is the outdoor living culture at the heart of Scandinavian law and life in a variety of countries. Um, and we looked at, I looked at, uh, how the toy coin was termed by Ibsen again, 1859-1860. Um, it's historicised in the history of uh, where do we come from, the outdoor education movement, we come from the Scandinavian ideal of outdoor living. Looked at how that's very much kind of invented in the 19th century again as part of nascent cultural nationalism, ways to articulate a nation state after, you know, being controlled by other countries, etc, etc. So, I said we were jumping across the Atlantic to John Harvey Kellogg, and that's exactly what we're going to do. So, I think we probably all know how weird John Harvey Kellogg was at this point. Um, the, the Road to Wellville, the book and film made from it, um, along with, I think, from doing some sounding out on Twitter yesterday, most people know that cornflakes were essentially designed as an anti-masturbation device. Again, there was some speculation about how that would work, but the idea is that the nutrition and the healthy living that go with them will sap you of, of beastly urges to interfere with yourself and thus ruin your um, your, your pure ideal manhood. Uh, just to, to read a nice summary, John Harvey Kellogg, who invented the cereal with his brother, was a sort of prophet of hygiene in 20th century America. But although he championed nutrition and a holistic approach to the overall health of the average American, Kellogg was also, this will not surprise you, a staunch eugenicist and launched a violent anti-masturbation campaign that saw the genitals of young boys and girls mutilated. If illicit commerce of the sexes is a heinous sin, Kellogg wrote, self-pollution is a crime doubly abominable. So in plain facts for old and young, embracing the natural history and hygiene of organic life, Kellogg catalogued 39 different symptoms of a person plagued by masturbation, including general infirmity, defective development, mood swings, fickleness, bashfulness, boldness, bad posture, stiff joints, fondness for spicy foods, interesting, acne, palpitations, and epilepsy. They're just literally nothing that uh, self-pollution can't cause to happen to you, even things that are profoundly contradictory in and of themselves. Uh, so just as with, um, as we'll see with uh, very good movements for outdoor education, the uh, sort of baby camps of the 1920s, uh, 1910s and 1920s, where people put poor children, as we'll see, outside overnight in order to strengthen their lungs and prevent them from getting diseases. But that's linked to leftism and, um, you know, improving the lot of the poor. That is always tied, this outdoor education idea, to a political movement of some kind, a developing sense of what the people uh, mean, right? So either it means evolving German nationalism, or it means, you know, evolving peasants in, in Switzerland, to go back to Pantalotti, or here it means rugged individuals who must learn to take their hands out of their trousers. Now I've got a lovely thing where Kellogg addresses education specifically. Um, I read this when we did the brief version, so if you're listening again, you will have heard this before. Join in when you feel comfortable. This is his big argument for outdoor education um, and, and a new method of education which will put children on the straight and narrow, but also democratise them and, and truly 
individualize the learning experience, put it back into the mind of the child instead of the hands of the teacher. Happy is the child, says Kellogg, who has as an opportunity outdoor education. The things a child may learn out of doors without other teacher than nature are by no means insignificant. I can't wait. Let's find out. What can you learn if you just open the door and send your child into the woods? He may watch the ant hollowing out its underground chambers and storing away the winter's supply of food and learn lessons of industry and frugality. I think the word may is doing an awful lot of work there. But uh, yeah, I think the way we would talk about this now would be, um, what is that? Primary learning, primary knowledge, secondary knowledge, whatever. This is all about discovering by looking at ants and that, right? Uh, the He may watch the ant, da, da, da. The oriole building its nest, the spider weaving its web, the caterpillar spinning its cocoon are nature's teachers from whom he can learn lessons as valuable as any he can find in books. The mole plowing its furrow in the garden, the earthworm making soil, the fly consuming rubbish, the bee gathering honey, the squirrel cracking nuts, the grass putting forth its tiny blades higher and higher from day to day, the flower budding and unfolding its blossoms, the tree putting out its leaves. Yeah, right, Kellogg, we know, we know how outside works. Let's just uh, skip forward, Kellogg. Uh, only the curious hours of childhood peep and the veritable menagerie of centipedes and crickets, land snails and slugs, thousand-legged worms, big and little bugs of many sorts, mushrooms, stunted weeds, animals and vegetables, forms too numerous to mention, and yet somehow he's mentioning them all, revealed by turning over a flat stone or an old plank. These and a thousand other objects and activities of nature afford an unceasing foundation for the most charmingly interesting study, amusement, entertainment, and instruction for the child. Um, and we do have roots in that, all the way back to uh, Froebel, writing in 1816, and then in his kindergarten of 1840, the idea that the, the child is, is master of its own learning, and that play-based learning and discovery learning is, is the way in which young children learn. But we take a turn to a practical education because we've decided to bring the outside in, not through ants in the classroom, though of course that would be great, and honeybees and orioles and moles and thousand-legged worms. No, no, he's got a new method. For a practical education nowadays, it's not necessary to turn the child outdoors, or at least it's not necessary to keep him out all the time. The spirit of reform is in the air. The evils of old systems are being discovered and rooted out. Nature study, as it has been conducted in our school during the past year, and as it may be conducted, the teaching of mathematics and other abstract sciences in connection with concrete things, as for example, I love this, teaching arithmetic in connection with miniature house building. Oh yeah, I say bring that back. I want GCSE exams that are miniature house building with mathematics born from that. In connection with amateur agriculture, measuring off the plat of land to be planted and determining its area, measuring the depth at which the seed is planted. All right. At that point, we can kind of go back to these 18th century Swiss educators who, again, are very farm based. This is education not for the sons of gentlemen. This is an education for the sons and daughters of the soil. And uh, they are very much learning by doing farming activities. And as we saw with the 18th century model, initially that's seen as a for-profit situation, as indeed it is by Mr. Kellogg. Let's not, let's not fool ourselves here. Um, so not only will the children be learning, but hopefully you have the exciting side product of some produce to sell at the end of it. Uh, 
Uh, learning language by describing orally and in writing the things observed in the study of natural objects. Da 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 da. Um, let me go to my lovely word here. Nature study in the fields, training in accuracy and conscientiousness in the various kinds of sloyd, S-L-O-Y-D, paper, pasteboard, basket, wood, and sewing sloyd. These reforms are all immense advantages. Now, sloyd. Let's, uh, I'm looking at Dan. Well, it sounds as if there are roots in pantheism. Kellogg's Baptist background may well instead. God can be found in everything. And so this must be more fo focused on a reformist view. Specific to American pioneerism. Well, you would think that, wouldn't you, Dan? Except that we have very much a similar thing going on in mid 19th century Norway. Um, we have very similar things going on in Switzerland. It's, I would say, it's more rooted to, as Kellogg says, spirit of reformism, to general 19th century moves towards both nationalism, because this is very much tied to an idea of what the folk do uh, in America. Obviously, that has to be um, understood as a sort of blended nationalism uh, of Europeanness, which is, as we're going to see, where he gets this Sloyd idea from. But for other countries, it's very specific to their nation state, to the kind of like ethnic and cultural Herderian Vogue nationalism um, that, that underlies them. You, you'll see you'll see when I get to the wandering bird movement. I'll convince you, Daniel. I promise you. What is Sloyd? Well, last time I talked about this, luckily, um, one of my my wonderful Twitter friends, Mrs. B, uh, has works in Sweden. And her child does all kinds of Sloyd, so it's not just a lie. Let's find out what Sloyd is, and then I'll tell you the terrible thing that happened to her child during Knife Sloyd. So Sloyd, which he's spelling like Floyd with a capital S, which is how Anglophone writers spell it. Um, it's actually got a J in it, um, obviously, when it's in, in Swedish. Uh, also known as Educational Sloyd is a system of handicraft-based education started by Uno Signius in Finland in 1865. Again, long coincidental convergence of that 1860s moment. The system was further refined and promoted worldwide and was taught in the United States until the early 20th century. So Kellogg's coming in um, at the height of educational sloyd being seized enthusiastically in schools across the United States. Uh, and it will disappear again very, very rapidly uh, and be replaced instead by Boy Scouts movements and things like that. Educational Sloyd's purpose was formative and that it was thought that the benefits of handicrafts in general in education built the character of the child, encouraging moral behaviour, greater intelligence and industriousness. So we have lots of different kinds of Sloyd. Uh, what's his face? Kellogg has just mentioned paper Sloyd. What do we know about paper Sloyd? Well, let's find out. Observation is quickened. Eyes are trained to see right lines and distances, thus aiding in freehand drawing and writing, whilst the hand and wrist muscles being used for a definite purpose unconsciously become obedient assistants. Uh, very sensible early years foundation stage um, and early years in general, and at, as we all know, home education, development of fine motor skills and stuff like that makes total sense. Mrs. B says she's quite fond of paper Sloyd, mostly because it doesn't involve accidentally cutting off anyone's fingers. But um, don't forget, it has been tied to morality, the development of morality. So it's always loaded the handicrafts, the outdoor education in the 19th century. It always somehow means morality, um, getting away from the immorality of towns, from uh, 
challenges facing um, a growing urban poor. Uh, and it, you can see it as some form of like pacification as well. So for, for Kellogg, it's about pacification from impulse to masturbate. But here um, in this kind of Finnish model, and then as it's being adopted in the United States, it's making the poor industrious. So rather than the best that has been thought and said, we have outdoor education functioning here as um, a sort of romantic nationalist vision of helping the poor child live their best life by learning to farm, right? Learning to do crafts. Of course, this is not the case in Scandinavia. This is integrated across the education system. Everyone does sloid. Um, educational sloid as practiced in Sweden started with the use of the knife. The knife was controversial when sloid was first introduced to the United Kingdom. Educators in London and the other cities of the UK could hardly imagine putting knives in the hands of juveniles. Yeah, and, and, you should hear Mrs B tell you what happened. Her child had been doing knife sloid and came home to, to demonstrate some of his amazing knife sloid skills and chopped off the top of his finger, necessitating some hospital sloid immediately thereafter. <laughs> Wonderful. So, uh, yeah, some aspects of that, of course, remain um, the idea that we need lots and lots of fine motor skills and you know, practical activities during early years foundation stage, which is great. Um, we don't have this this kind of we don't we haven't continued with the phrase or concept of Sloyd and certainly not with knives. Though, as I said, the last time I chatted about Sloyd, my play school in the 1970s, there was a huge I say huge, but I was only two feet tall, so it probably just seemed huge. There was a stump in the middle of the room um, at Gold Hill Baptist Church in Chamberlain St. Peter, and it was covered, bristling with partially hammered in two-inch nails. And small children, toddlers as we were, two years old or so, um, could pick up one of the range of claw hammers surrounding the stump and just bang away with no adult supervision. I'm amazed I still have both eyes. It was the best toy. I adored it. Anyway, that, you can see Sloyd hanging on there. Um, when I talked about this before, someone said that they, they, they still have that. The, their child's play school has that. I don't, my child would not have coped well in such a situation. Now, we have Margaret Macmillan's open-air nursery for slum children is then kind of what happens in the UK. And we'll go back to the UK. But I want to go to, uh, well... In, in British, we'd say Wondervogel. Of course, it's Wondervogel. That's Wandering Bird. And it's the name adopted by a popular movement of German youth groups from 1896 to 1933 who protested against industrialization by going to hike in the country and commune with nature in the woods. Um, so, yeah, drawing influence from medieval wandering scholars, their ethos was to revive old Teutonic values with a strong emphasis on German nationalism. Um, a major contribution of the Wondervogel was the revival of folk songs in wider German society. Let's look at those dates again, 1896 to 1933. If you think revival of old Teutonic values and folk customs and quasi-medieval histories in Germany, 1896 to 1933, might be a tad problematic, you would not be wrong. Right. So all of that, the argument I was making about the, the tying of this outdoor education tradition, this ahistorical creation of a, a faux history of communing with nature in a very 
ethnic and country specific way um, that comes to a peak in this this rather weird and wonderful youth group protest which involves people hiking in mountains as a form of protest against established society and thus discovering for themselves true germanness is it anti-semitic oh gosh yes with bells on um, they have votes they exclude jewish people they cannot join because they're not true germans so it, like other forms of uh, Herderian Vogue nationalism, turns into very, very much blood and soil nationalism. They do let girls in, so that's nice. And when we get to blood and soil nationalism and to the rise of fascism and its relationship to outdoor education, um, it has to be time for your friend, my friend, I'm just going to read something else in a minute, your friend, my friend, uh, Baden-Powell and his Scouting for Boys manual of 1908. That chap there is saying, I blame Forest School and the Cubs for my son requesting a whittling knife for his ninth birthday. Yeah, I never learned to whittle. I read about children whittling in books. That's the closest I got to whittling, especially um, Dickon in The Secret Garden, who was just, just couldn't, couldn't go a second without communing with a bird in some way or, or taming a small forest animal or whittling a, a, a quick tool with which to do all of the above. Right, so uh, valorization of the uh, agrarian poor, um, it goes hand in hand with, with yeah, not giving them access to, to other forms of education, um, which is completely different to Macmillan. Let's go back to Baden-Powell. So some extracts from the 1908 manual. Um, you should remember that being one fellow among many others, you are like one brick among many others in the wall of a house. If you are discontented with your place or your neighbours, or if you are a rotten brick, you are no good to the wall. You are rather a danger. If the bricks get quarrelling amongst themselves, the wall is liable to split and the whole house to fall. I'm just raising my eyebrows, which obviously doesn't play well on the radio, but yeah. Uh, so... Again, if if the German versions of this, the Austrian version, the Swiss version, the various Scandinavian versions have been about articulating a form of um, craft and outdoor practice for blood and soil nationalism, this one here is still very much about group identity. Uh, obviously, Baden-Powell involved in the Boer War, Siege of Mafeking. Um, this grows out of that. He's training children for empire. That is no diss on the current iteration of the Scouts. We're looking at where this particular movement came from and how they're tied together with various other things. Um, what does it mean to be a rotten brick in that wall? Well, it comes back, as Mr. Kellogg would tell us, to masturbation. There's an awful lot about masturbation in um, the 1908 iteration of the Boy Scouts. The result of self-abuse is always, mind you, always, he says, that the boy after a time becomes weak and nervous and shy. He gets headaches and probably palpitation of the heart. And if he still carries it on too far, he very often goes out of his mind and becomes an idiot. Several awful diseases come from indulgence. One especially that rots away the inside of men's mouths, their noses and eyes, etc. I assume he's talking about syphilis there, which, yeah, FYI for anyone listening and worried about it, you cannot get from self-love whatever Mr. Baden-Powell may say to you. Um, so we're building boys for nation and empire, and they need to be strong boys, they need to be healthy boys, they need to be trained in a love of outside, able to whittle at a moment's notice, and such like things. Um, avoid listening to stories or reading or thinking about dirty subjects. 
It is at present a disgrace and a danger, says Baden-Powell to England, that from want of self-restraint among men and women, thousands upon thousands of children are born every year for whom there is no work and no money. Um, the Obviously, Kellogg was tied to eugenics. Baden-Powell here making a very clear case that there's an inferior people being born because of a lack of self-restraint. Too many people are being born. Um, as we all know, if we do our feminism in an intersectional way, Margaret Sanger and the early contraception pioneers, very much eugenicists as well. Some people should breed, others not. So, as throughout the show, we have a surplus of poor, agriculturally poor, and then increasingly urban poor children, um, tied together with the idea of training them to do something useful, democratizing it. You know, it's supposed to come from themselves. They're supposed to learn. Uh, that's notably not what's happening in the schools for elite children. You know, like German middle-class students are still doing the arbitrary. They're not, they're not out whittling and doing some sloid. Um, and very much for the nation, right? So it's very much tied to the needs of the nation. And then uh, one aim of the Boy Scout scheme is to revive amongst us, if possible, some of the rules of the Knights of Old. Don't forget the von der Vogel, same thing, medievalism. Uh, that's why all of my poor colleagues who work in Anglo-Saxon history or medieval history in any way are plagued with white nationalists. Um, white nationalists are drawn to medieval history like the kind of flies that would teach and entertain the children in Kellogg's classroom. Because this faux historicization of Anglo-Saxon, Teutonic, white ethnic culture is tied together with this history of outdoor education. Let's call this the dark history of outdoor education because there are some very good versions of it too, obviously. Uh, which has done so much for the moral tone of our race, again, always tied to a creation of, of um, part of the 19th century project of racialization, the creation of sort of whiteness and specific local racing. So the, the British island race, just as the Bushido of the ancient samurai knights has done and is still doing for Japan. Jealousy of Japanese culture. Unfortunately, chivalry with us has to a large extent been allowed to die out, whereas in Japan it is taught to children so that it becomes with them a practice of their life. And it is also taught to children in Germany and in Switzerland with the best results. We have an awful lot of Anglophone yearning for um, nationalist educational practice. Um, in texts like this. So a lot of people wishing they could be more like Germany, more like Japan, more like the people who'd successfully fused sort of fetishization of their faux medieval traditions. 19th century, essentially, guys, spoilers, invents our entire version of reality and history that we live in comes from the 19th century. Like kilts, 19th century, everything, 19th century, Christmas, 19th century. Victorians created our history in the most just demented way in the world. Um, going to Jenny Rothenberg Gritz's kind of summary of where Baden-Powell's attraction to that kind of group identity and faux history and faux medievalism, where that goes and who else is saying that kind of thing in Europe and the world at the time. Um, Baden-Powell was equally enthusiastic about the fascism that began spreading through Europe after World War I. He visited Italy in 1933 and wrote admiringly about the boy man Benito Mussolini, who had absorbed his country's Boy Scouts into a thriving new nationalist youth movement. The dictator explained that he'd accomplished this feat simply by moral force 
an explanation Baden-Powell felt augurs well for the future of Italy. It didn't. If Baden-Powell, says the journalist, had had his way, the Boy Scouts might have formed close ties with Hitler Youth. In 1937, which is very late in the day, he told the Scouts' international commissioner that the Nazis were, quote, most anxious that the Scouts should come into closer touch with the youth movement in Germany. Baden-Powell met with the German ambassador in London and was invited to meet the Fuhrer himself, though the war prevented him from visiting the Third Reich. But he continued to admire Hitler's values, writing in a 1939 diary entry that Mein Kampf was a wonderful book with good ideas on education, health, propaganda, organisation, etc. Yeah, that chap there is saying nationalist rivalry. A lot of this coincides with fear over the unification of Germany and the scramble of Africa, roughly 1870s to 1914. Absolutely. So I, I realise I'm... I'm presenting a picture of outdoor education as the most profound tool in um, propaganda and cultural creation in the service of empire. But you know what? I'm not embarrassed to do that because having done my five in the morning research as usual, and my thinking about it in the background, that does seem to be the most consistent theme. There is really no way to disentangle the faux history created by the outdoor education movement in the 19th century and the 20th without keeping it entangled in in exactly what that chat there says the scramble for africa the expansion of empires um the the fear of where the german empire is going you can see there both envy and fear of the japanese um empire happening in the early 20th century all of which would of course find expression in the first and then second world war right bloemfontein and free state south africa right nice uh different thing entirely we're just going to skip back in time a little and look at what's happening in the UK in the teens. So we've got a Baden-Powell doing, you know, this. it looks like fascism, it smells like fascism, it's fascism, everyone's a brick in the wall, strong mind, strong body, boys trained to just think of themselves, to, to not think of themselves, to think of the group, to express nationalism, to fight for the nation, to position themselves against other empires, you know, there, there's no way around that. That doesn't mean the Scouts themselves are that now, but that's very much the genesis of the Scouts. What we have going on in Britain is something very different. So let's go to a much more sort of leftist communitarian version. And um, Margaret Macmillan. Now I'm using here a um, friend of the show and former interviewee, uh, Pam Jarvis, Dr. Pam Jarvis's article on Margaret Macmillan. She's done lots on her. Margaret Macmillan, as many of you will know, started the Open Air Nursery for Slum Children. So this one isn't about doing crafts and whittling and sloyd and all of those things. This one really is just about the benefits of outdoors. The outdoors as a good thing versus indoors as a bad thing. And she has very, very good reason for thinking as, of indoors as a bad thing because she's specifically designing education for slum children. So she grows up in Scotland but moves to London in the late 1880s um, at where she begins working with the Labour movement, speaking regularly at Hyde Park Corner. Um, which leads to her being dismissed by her employer. So she moves to Bradford, she does socialist lectures, and she contributes to the birth of the Parliamentary Labour Party. So hugely influential figure, hugely important historical figure. She was given a place on the Bradford School Board as a Labour representative, where she came to the conclusion very rapidly that it was impossible to educate a tired, dirty, diseased and hungry child, and that by imposing compulsory schooling on deprived children, a well-meaning state was actually adding to their misery. 
So it was largely due to her campaigning that Bradford became the first school board in Britain to provide medical inspection, free school meals and school baths in some of its poorest areas. Uh, after school boards were abolished in 1902 and responsibility given to local authorities, women were specifically excluded from that. So Margaret went to London where she did the stuff for which she's most famous, um, which was setting up the schools and the baby camps for poor children. So uh, a baby camp was established initially for six children. I love this stuff. By the summer, some 29 children aged from three months to five years lived at the school and slept in the open air at night. Um, I think we've probably all seen those like astonishing looking pictures from the 30s and 40s of people wanting to give their babies the benefit of outside air, not the poison of inside breath. And they had cages that you could attach to your second, third, fourth story apartments that you could put the baby out for the night in the cage. I know my dad, who was born in 49, my nan used to put him in his pram and, and just push him into the garden and leave him there. <laughs> which has a double benefit number one can't hear your baby crying number two healing outside air right but i don't mean to be glib about it though though the sort of like healing outside air idea can be taken far too far what Macmillan is doing here is is very specifically trying to counter diseases caused by overcrowding as part of a general hygiene movement um hygiene at the same time as she's doing this, is being associated with moral qualities and, you know, anti-masturbation by Kellogg, by Baden-Powell, um, in the von der Vogels. So you've got an enormous number of people using exactly the same set of language for some parts of outside and outdoor education, but taking it in very, very different directions. Um, what then starts happening in Britain with the sort of experimental outside education um, I've got a couple of ads from 1920s or earlier newspapers, but also uh, Mr. John Arrowsmith writing about his Mixenden School in Education Experiments by Head Teachers in Elementary Schools, 1918, for the Committee on New Ideals in Education. What should we do with the poor? The experiment with um, mass educating every child in the nation is obviously at this point nearly a couple of decades old. Right. So public education, we've got all of these poor children in, we've decided to educate them, create mass literacy, what should we do? Obviously the one we talk about now is the sort of Matthew Arnold, best that has been thought and said, cultural capital transmission. Um, we talk about that in a rather ahistorical way, quite, quite deliberately, because you know even people who are very much part of that tradition of thinking that school should be to pass on some idea of the the canon and canonicity and shared cultural moments are aware that that the actual genesis of those ideas comes from a, a very different place so matthew arnold's it's all about preventing revolution right civilizing the poor with with a poor man's version of the classics for english in order to stop them from you know putting you up against the wall and shooting you essentially so very much about state control um what the mixenden school is doing instead is completely different tradition what all of these schools are doing instead is a completely different tradition, which is educating the poor to, to stay poor, right, essentially. Um, so reading loads the imagination with symbols only of things, says Mr. Arrowsmith. To produce real power of imagination, things ought to be imaged first on the grey matter of the brain. 
teachers love a bit of cod neuroscience, don't they? Here they are doing it in 1918. Can't get enough of it. To a child, the book is, even at its best, only a source of second-hand knowledge. It is knowledge absorbed by the straining of the eye, an organ which, in its racial evolution, has not, even in the adult, become used to the latest civilised demands of reading and writing. Now, this Mr. Arrowsmith is very well-meaning, right? He's not overtly eugenicist. He wants to provide outdoor education for the poor, meaningful education for children suited to them. And yet we have that idea of race. We have that idea of, of evolutionary social sorting. Um, because, of course, these children, even in adults, the civilised demands of reading and writing are bad for children. Um, not for upper middle class children. Not, presumably, for Mr. Arrowsmith himself. He's perfectly capable of reading and writing. But not these poor children. No, no. What should they do instead? It is recognised that the old monkish tradition of the necessity of reading and writing for the young is against all the natural characteristics of healthy children. A child likes his stories hot and quick from mouth to ear. He is ear-minded. He likes to tell his stories. He is tongue-minded. To pick a story from a book is a tedious mental task. To write a story slows down the thought machine and produces piffle. Talking, hearing and doing are for a child the natural and therefore the physiological methods of growing to knowledge and of giving expression to developing powers. Um, here is where I put in Steiner, because the Wardle schools are, of course, founded not in the middle of the 19th century, as, as our sort of weird chronology from the forest school movement told us, but in the early 1930s. And quite famously, the Steiner school system, um, children aren't taught to read or write until I think they're seven. Um, that's where the gnomes come in, by the way. So the children in the Steiner system live in a world of magic, spirituality, natural discovery. There's a lot of stuff about gnomes, way more than you'd think, because I would think personally, there would be zero about gnomes in any educational theory, but there's a lot. Um, and then only, only when they've gone through this magical, karmic, spiritual, fairy and gnome-based phase of, of living and discovering, can they then be taught to read and write? And we see that happening here in, in you know, at the Mixenden School in 1918 as well. Uh, at Mixenden School, there are two large playgrounds, a playing field, a large garden, a sand pit, swings, hen house, chicken coops, roundabout hutches, all with the exception of the playgrounds and the playing field, made by the children with the help of teachers. See, if they'd stuck to the 18th century model, they could have been selling some of this stuff they should. From these things, together with our rambles, nearly all our educational workflows give to us Earth's raw material and in reason we will make what we need. So um, I've got here a 1921 ad uh, from April 1921 in The Guardian um, for a school just near me, that's three miles from me, uh, a garden school in Balladshire Grange, Great Missenden and Bucks, an experimental school offering a first class in capital letters, modern education on capital letters, natural lines. What does that mean? Open air classes, eurythmics, which is of course the invention of sort of aerobics. Um, Margaret Morris dancing. Ooh, not just Morris dancing, Margaret Morris dancing. Uh, music appreciation, acting, singing, drawing, painting, modeling, history of art, gardening, cookery, Montessori department, crafts, Boarding fees, 150 guineas the year, only extras, individual music and singing lessons, riding and personal expenses, co-education until 13, girls remain until 19, pupils will be prepared for matriculation, 
um, if aptitude for such work is shown, vacancies for boys 9 to 13. So this one, you know, we have stretched into the middle classes. We're absolutely, people with money to send their children off to boarding school. Obviously, this isn't one of the elite public schools, but it, it's not just teaching the poor to whittle. This is very much a movement in um, 1918. Now, if you believe um, back back in time for school, which I watched recently, watched the um, the interwar years one. This is this is something that's happening across state schools as well as across private schools. Is training children after the first world war a lot of focus on training children for physical preparedness for fighting so in that same thing that that chat there was asking us to look at the development of um you know empire scramble for africa clash of empires in the very early 20th century and late 19th century here we have very much lessons learned from world war one we want our young children our boys particularly to be trained to do all kinds of physical education um, certain kinds of fitness that will equip them for field combat. So if you are as old as me and grew up having to do sort of run and jump at, um, at a vaulting horse or walk along a, a wooden bench, a series of things that looked incredibly random at the time about throwing yourself over bits of wood and walking on poles, those are really about replicating the conditions of, 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 of field combat that's what that sort of education was for um this obviously combined with all kinds of greater spiritual growth things about your rhythmics so physical health and cultural health again all tied to um the development of of culture and and national culture this one um an open air school successful experiment in salford um for the first line really the open air day school for delicate children, delicate children, I don't think I was ever a delicate child, which the Salford Education Committee desires to extend, has been so successful since it was established in 1916, that, but for government restrictions, the committee would no doubt have gone on with the project for new school premises in the Bolton Road. As it is, the committee hopes to be allowed to accommodate 50 more scholars. There are 72 now in the school. Since the school has been in existence, 412 delicate children have passed through it and last year there were 86. They are drawn of course from the elementary schools and are of various ages from 6 up to 14. They are all passed on by the medical officer and the benefits derived from their stay are regular feeding, rest and a free play-like discipline in the open air. And then it goes on to describe a long shed. Pity the poor child identified as delicate. Uh, someone saying here these schools philosophies were product of their times whilst in conflict with any sense of justice when applied to our thinking there was an attempt to educate young people who otherwise would not gain any sense of community interpersonal interaction alternative cultural recognition absolutely educating children is without question a good thing and and this focus on so what we've been looking at is not that anything is bad per se, just that things are being drawn in a lot of different directions. That enormous number of people are talking about the same idea, outdoor education, the benefits of, of, of crafts, of spending time outside, of not being enclosed in industrial spaces, but doing it for very, very, very different reasons. So just because one of them is doing it in a, in a completely vogue nationalist, going on to be a Nazi sort of way, doesn't mean that everyone has to be hard by that same brush but it is fascinating how we have to try and disentangle strands of it 
from what else is going on. Or I suppose we could take that to mean that any education replicates the political conditions surrounding it because the education of children is so intimately bound up in the notion of production of the nation, right? Uh, that chap there is saying, country dancing with wooden swords, Clarence Street Jr.'s Swindon circa 1968. <sighs> country dancing with wooden swords. Well, and then that, the country dancing, that um, that's from the interwar years as well. The, and, and as is the Morris dancing being mentioned there. Uh, Maypole dancing, which I was doing in school in the 1970s, which I think people still do to some extent. But again, that's the kind of, that's the creation of a faux historical tradition to do with, to go all the way back to the beginning of the show and the way Norway was talking about itself, getting back to nature, getting back to some kind of historical practice that in fact is not a continuous historical practice at all. Right? It's an invention of the 19th century, the 20th century. We imagine our past in order to articulate our present. Weren't expecting this when I told you we're getting gnomes and, uh, and masturbation, were you? Yeah. <laughs> Roger's history. Tom is telling me that I need to recreate this maypole dancing in a video for Twitter. Tom, let me tell you the tragic, tragic history of my involvement with Newtown, Newtown School Primary School in Chesham, Buckinghamshire. Two children, one boy and one girl, were required to sit on the base of the maypole in order to balance it as the other children flitted about beautifully, creating lovely patterns. I was one of those children who sat at the base of the maypole. So my entire experience of maypole is I'm a foot taller than everybody else. I have to sit there and watch the pretty children dance. Isn't that tragic? Are you happy now, Tom? Are you? <laughs> it is a key role. It's, it's quite literally a foundational role, Tom. So, you know, I, I, I sacrifice in order that others may shine. That's the story of teaching. Right. Uh, I am going to play the news and then I'm going to take us out with um, a brief turn to the Woodcraft folk after that. I have to end slightly early today because my very own human child becomes an adult today and uh, I have to go and do her happy birthday thing or she may well murder me with a pen knife or some kind of knife sleep. So one more time with Gail Glenn's news and then I'm going to tell you about the Woodcraft folk and if you're lucky I might even sing to you. Oh yeah. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cats. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk Teachers Talk Radio is delighted to support Winston's Wish, the UK's childhood bereavement charity. Winston's Wish supports children and their families after the death of a parent or sibling. They provide emotional and practical bereavement support. Expert teams also provide online resources, specialist publications and training for professionals. Find out more about Winston's Wish and pledge your support at www.winstonswish.org. 
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. According to a report in the Times Educational Supplement, the current state of SEND provision in England is resulting in magnet and honeypot schools. Magnet schools is a term which has increasingly been given to settings which have a higher percentage of students with SEND on roll than is reflected in the local community. Many of these schools are concerned that their higher than average proportion of students with SEND is not significantly recognised by Ofsted or the government. Pep Delazio, head teacher of Wales High School in Sheffield, says his school is a magnet school and added... It's like having a five-star review on TripAdvisor. This year's open evening was frightening. We had parents coming from all over the nearby authorities we serve because of our reputation. And that is worrying because while we want to do our best for these students, how long can we maintain it? According to the most recent government data, between 2015 and 2021, the number of SEND students in England rose from 991,981 to 1,083,003. In October, Nadim Sahawi said that he recognised the urgency around providing the provision of SEND. The Education Secretary, Nadim Sahawi, has backed the reduction of the COVID isolation period from seven to five days, saying it would be more helpful. Speaking to the Sunday Times, he said, the UK Health Security Agency have said they want to review it. So we will stick to seven days, but if they review it and say they will bring it down to five days, then that is even better for me. It's even more helpful. His comments come after parents were urged to book jabs for their children as official COVID deaths passed 150,000 in the UK. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Ah, <coughs> uh, that chap there saying one of our infant schools has a maypole. Um, I touched briefly on um, the history of uh, the, the reason why country dancing and maypole dancing and stuff was was brought back as a form of nostalgia for the countryside and increasingly urbanised nation. You know, the, the creation of a faux continuous history of imagined medieval traditions. Um, that made me think of square dancing. Uh, did you have to do square dancing at school, any of you? If you didn't, or if, if I think we did at some point, it was a huge thing in America. And um, my mother, who was born in 1948 in New Jersey, she she had square dancing classes. Um, so they all went off and did square dancing classes in New Jersey. Her school was integrated. Um, so as the tallest girl, she was always dancing with the tallest boy who was African-American. I mention that because square dancing, as many of you may know, but a lot of people surprisingly don't, as a phenomenon in schools, was very much um, put forward as a counter to the influence of black music. So quite specifically understood and, and promoted by none other than Henry Ford, the automobile manufacturer, um, as, as a counter to black music, 
uh, terrifying to him racial admixture and integration. So instead, we have this creation of, of you know, what he sees as a very specifically white tradition to do with country music. Right, I said I was going to mention the Woodcraft folk and perhaps sing you a song if you're incredibly lucky. Um, the Woodcraft folk are founded in the mid-20s, sharing many of the same historical roots as the scouting movement, but directly encounter to it. So the founders there, um, led by an ex-scout commissioner for Woodcraft and Camping, John Halgrave, broke with what he saw considered to be the scouts' militaristic approach in the years immediately after the First World War. So um, in the original genealogy of the history of outdoor education that I was using, they didn't even mention the scouts particularly. They do mention the Woodcraft folk, but the scouts are one of those, you know, as, as we've said, some of the outdoor education stuff is deeply unpleasant. So we will remember a pathway that takes us to the place where we are and where we want to be ideologically and conceptually and intellectually. And the Woodcraft folk um, is that. So the Woodcraft folk is, let's see, in the early days, it's got a strong pagan and anti-capitalist emphasis, gradually develops its own distinct ethos. In the 1920s and 30s, it had close ties to the cooperative societies and to the labor pacifist, early feminist and trade union movements, which provided a, pace, a, play, uh, a base for recruiting both adults and children and a practical focus, which avoided it sharing the fates of previous versions, the Kibbo Kift and the Order of Woodcraft Chivalry, which both became increasingly eccentric and esoteric and were moribund by the 1950s. Order of Woodcraft Chivalry should make us instantly think of our von der Vogel and their Teutonic German knight things, as well as Baden-Powell and his faux medievalism um, and envy of the Bushido memories of Japan. Um, so the Woodcraft folk detaches itself from that. Um, it remains mainly based in working class districts of industrial towns and cities, notably London, Coventry and Sheffield, with strong connections to the cooperative societies till the 1960s, when it starts to get a more middle class membership. Um, and during the 70s to 90s, there's a large increase in them. Um, it's, it's membership has been collapsing since girls were admitted into um, scouts since there was more integration there um, and so I'm going to finish by telling you about Sarah who I knew in the mid 90s who was um, born and brought up in Newcastle and the daughter of two very active Labour politicians and say unlike me who my mother American mother sent me off to girl guides where I lasted for about six months where we had to pledge allegiance to the Queen Sarah's parents were like, no, no, we, we know the history of Scouts. We want to send you to the Woodcraft folk. So she was at one of those traditional northern you know, chapters, closely tied, quite literally tied to the Labour Party movement. And here is the song that she would sing for me whenever we'd had more than three pints. OK, I like the flowers. I like the vegetables. I will start singing at some point. I don't like reactors. I know they're evil. I want to live in a nuclear-free society. No plutonium, no plutonium, no plutonium, no. I adore the thought. These eight and nine-year-old Geordie sons and daughters of the Labour Party clapping away about plutonium. At the 80s, quite a time to be alive. The rest of you who were born in the 90s, infants, you should be jealous. The tune of this, it goes, I like the flowers, I like the vegetables, don't like reactors, I know they're evil. I want to live in a nuclear-free society. No plutonium, no plutonium, no plutonium, no. So, 
teach it to your classes today. Make sure there's no plutonium in your classrooms. Eric Green doesn't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> Eric, you're not alone. It's, it's something I hear quite frequently. His sister homeschools her kids and his aunt is a school teacher. Well, lots of education tradition in your family then, Eric. Right, I am off to wish my child a happy birthday. Thank you for listening to my rambling. I am completely fascinated with the development of proto-nationalism and folk nationalism and doing things with knives and, and Scandinavian insistence on being outside at all times. So if you want to talk to me about that on Twitter or um, send me anything interesting you've got, please do. And otherwise, have a lovely Monday and I will see you back next week. <laughs> bye, Dan. Bye, everyone. You're all wonderful. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.